got back on vacation and get greeted with uh, an honor like that. I appreciate it. It is an honor to be able to serve you, and I know I speak for the rest of the staff and our spouses. It's an honor to be able to serve you, and we enjoy it. Amen. <laughs> well, you have the sermon or the church app open or your sermon section that you got in your hand. I am uh, doing a series now called The Biblical Woman. Um, before that, I did a series called Non-Toxic Masculinity. I've decided I'm, I'm going to have, uh, from now on, part of, it'll be part of my premarital counseling program. They have to listen to all those sermons about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Now, I don't know if you believe this or not, but you know I would I'm sh- I'll shoot straight with you, right? Right? I did not know when I began this series on the biblical woman, and maybe you guys don't pay attention to this kind of stuff, but uh, over the last several weeks, the evangelical movement has kind of blown up into a big feud, and the feud is over the role of women, the role of women. I mean, there's a lot. I thought, wow, how, how providential that we're talking about that. <clears throat> and if you'd like to know exactly how I feel, and I think I can speak for the congregation about female spiritual leadership um, a few weeks ago. The first sermon I talked about that, I, I did an entire sermon on developing what I believe is the New Testament biblical role for leadership, spiritual leadership when it comes to women. And so I, I refer you to that. And uh, I've been sharing with you that I believe that when the New Testament was written, it was written in a cultural context that was oppressive to women. I believe, if I understand it right, that women were often little more than property. They were the property of the husband, the property of the father. And Jesus shows up in this culture of oppression, and he begins to, in my opinion, as I look at it, overturn it. And the church, the Christian church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, has been the greatest thing that ever happened to women's rights. The church came along and began to be countercultural and tell the world, at least the Christian world, and then we communicate that to our the world outside of us, that there is in the mind of God equal value to women as there is to men. And as I looked at this, I began a couple of weeks ago, before I took vacation last week, I, I understand Pastor Dustin hit a home run last week. I will watch it and I'll tell, you, tell him whether it was true or not. <laughs> but I'm sure he did. Um, I began to look at what it means to be a woman in the New Testament. And I believe that rather than getting up and preaching about the role of women in the New Testament church, Jesus just began to use women to do great things. So I talked to you last week or a couple of weeks ago about lessons from the ladies. And you find these heroic lessons from the ladies of the gospel. And today I am at number five, and, this is called, and I call this God is worthy of everything. This is the lesson from the ladies. It's for all of us, but it is being taught by the ladies. Let me read a story to you from Mark chapter 12, verse 41. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put. We just received the offering. I should have read this before then, shouldn't I? 
Um, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, only worth the fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, he said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more in the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had to live on. What is the moral of this lesson from this lady? God doesn't care if you put in tiny, tiny offerings, right? God doesn't care if you're a tightwad. Is that the lesson? God doesn't care if you put in less than two pennies in the offering. I don't think that's the lesson. The lesson is that God looks at our offerings not at how much we gave, but at how much we kept. God is really not moved or impressed by how much we give. He's more impressed by how much we had left over. How many would agree that a $100,000 offering would be great? Anybody want to write that check today? I'll go on vacation again. A $100,000 offering, but if God blessed you with a million dollars, and you tithed $100,000, you kept $900,000. So not only is that a lot of giving, it's also a lot of keeping. Don't sell up on me. The message the woman, the, the widow's might tells us is that God is not looking at the vast amount of what we give. God is looking for a heart that is willing to give everything for Him. God is looking for someone who has no limits on what they will do for the Lord or what they will give to the Lord. It says she gave what she needed. She gave what was the very last that she had. Are you having fun yet? You see, I found always kind of humorous when you see people reaching for the wallets and clenching down on them. That, that. Folks, the offering's already come and gone. Don't worry about it. We're not going to pass it again. There are two kinds of people, let me say two kinds of Christians when it comes to material things. There are the all-in people. And there's the oh-no people. The all-in people say, God, I'm all-in. I will do whatever you want me to do right down to the last thing I have, and I will take any risk for you, no matter what that risk is, I believe that you are going to somehow take care of me when I can't take care of myself. Right? And then there are the oh-no people. And the oh-no people say, God, I can't do that. It's dangerous. Did you ever do something for God that was such a risk that 
If he didn't come through, you were in trouble. Hello? If he didn't come through, you were in trouble. My wife and I have loaded up our family and moved to unfamiliar cities. Rented a house, sat down and said, now what? And I'm telling you, it wasn't any fun. It was scary as you can possibly be. You're sitting there and say, God, we don't have any income. We don't, have, we don't know what we're going to do. All we know is that you said, come here. And now you're going to have to come through. I remember before we moved to Liberty, success for me on that transition period was being able to eat and hold down half a peanut butter sandwich. No fat jokes, please. I heard them. My mind was picking up. Well, apparently you wouldn't trust me. Yeah. But I remember when we felt like, okay, we've got God's, we've got God's uh, plan. He said move to liberty and, and that. But you load up and you go there and you're in a house and you move and you sit and you go, now what, God? How in the world are you going to take care of us? And somehow, some way, God does because you have given your last sense to accomplish the will of God. That is what I call the all-in people. There's nothing we won't do for God. God, whatever you say, we will do that and let the chips fall. And then there is the oh-no people. And the only way they're going to obey God is if it's safe. Hello? Can I get an amen once in a while? You know, just (laughs) humor me a little bit, you know. The only way I'm going to obey God is if it's safe. Let me tell you something. This is not original with me. I'm not sure who said this, but it may, I've thought of this many times. When you are in over your head, it no longer matters how deep the water is. When you're in over your head, it doesn't matter how deep the water is anymore. <laughs> If it's a foot over your head or a thousand feet over your head, you're still going to drown if, if, you, if something doesn't come through for you. And the all-in people say, I'm not going to worry how far I'm in over my head because once I'm in over my head, it doesn't really matter. The woman who gave her last two coins is simply saying, Jesus, you're worth everything to me. Hello? You're worth, you're, you're worth my last dime you're worth my last penny that is her lesson to us number six is somewhat similar i don't know how much you'll enjoy this one either jesus is more valuable than valuables can i tell you something can i tell you guys something what about you guys these guys are already weighed in. What about over here? I'm about to read to you God's perhaps most favorite story in the Gospels. Because the story I'm going to tell you appears in all four Gospels. Not many stories appear in all four Gospels. And Jesus said, wherever people talk about me, they'll tell this story. So it's, it's really an important story. One of Jesus, maybe the most favorite Story for Jesus, God the Father. Mark chapter 14, verse 3 says, While he was in Bethany reclining at the table of the home of a 
a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster box of very expensive perfume. I looked this up, and I think it would be, in today's value, somewhere around $50,000. Imagine you had a box of perfume that was worth about $50,000. Do they even make perfume that expensive? It was worth about $50,000, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those presents were in, saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste? Ooh. Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She just poured out $50,000. Jesus said it is a, a beautiful thing. The poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you'll not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be ta also told in memory of her. That's why I say this is, is made maybe Jesus' most favorite event of his life. Then Jesus Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. The reason I added that other one in there, some people say, well, that's, that's starting another story, is when you read this and you cross-reference this to John, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Judas could not fathom someone pouring $50,000 worth of perfume out on Jesus, even because he, had she sold it and given them the money, he would have had access to it because he was the treasurer and he was helping himself to it. Here we see Mark telling the story of the attitude of the apostles. Money had corrupted Judas, and that's what cost him everything. Let me read the story to you that talks more about the woman's aspect. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now, the one, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life, it's very important, a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's table, she brought an alabaster box of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, she began to weep, wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts for both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who was forgiven the, had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. She has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, her many sins have been forgiven. For 
she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. This woman, remember, look at how the whole emphasis of the story has shifted. Now it's about the woman. What kind of a person would pour out $50,000 worth of perfume on Jesus' head and his feet? What kind of a woman would stoop down and someone who's been walking in the dirt all day long with sweaty feet walks in and she drops to his feet and she begins to weep and her tears are flowing out of her eyes onto his feet and she's literally washing his feet with her tears and she takes her hair and she dries them because she doesn't have a towel. What kind of a person would put that kind of value on Jesus? And the answer to that question is, is a woman who understood her sinfulness. And a woman who understood the value of grace. A woman who understood, a person who understood how much they needed a God to love them unconditionally and immeasurably. When we understand that, we understand that Jesus is more valuable than any valuable. Amen. Jesus is more valuable than any valuable. You see, the reason I think sometimes we do not value Jesus very much, and Jesus kind of comes to the end of the list, and he's, he doesn't make much of a priority. He sort of, Jesus, I'm going to put him down here, and, and my life is going to revolve around what I want, what I need, what I think, and all these things. The reason so often we don't put a lot of value in Christ is we don't understand the depth of our sinfulness. Let's say that you owed me 10 bucks. Everybody, hand it over. You owed me 10 bucks. Person next to you, let's just say, I came to you, you owe me 10 bucks. I said, you know what, 10 bucks you owe me? Just forget about it. And you would say, You would say, thank you. But let's say that I came to your house tomorrow and I brought some papers and I handed them in the door and I said, uh, you know that mortgage you're going to be paying on for the next 30 years? I retired it for you. Then what would you say? Then what would you say? Huh? <laughs> Wouldn't you grab me and kiss me? If you would, you know you would. You would grab me, you'd hug me, you'd kiss me, you'd dance with me. Yeah, I'd be like a rag doll. You'd be slinging me around and <coughs> you'd be thinking about all the payments you weren't going to have to pay and all that. And I tell you something, Jesus did more than that for you. Jesus did more than that for you. This woman 
had a reputation as a sinful woman. I don't even know what that means. It would, to me, maybe imply that she had been a prostitute, since everyone knew that she was a sinful woman. In fact, she had been so sinful that the Pharisees said, if this guy were a real prophet, he would discern how unclean she is, how absolutely sinful she is. And now you have Jesus, who is perfect, standing in the presence of someone whose sin is absolutely famous in the community. And this Jesus loves her in spite of her great sin. And when she understands that, all value of all her valuables shrinks to zero. And the only thing that is really valuable is Jesus. We become materialistic when we don't understand our own sinfulness. We discount the value of Jesus' love and his grace when we don't understand our own sinfulness. If I go to the doctor and They give me some antibiotics, and a few days I'm feeling better. I say, well, that was nice. But if I went to the doctor and he said, you're terminally ill, we can't do anything, but wait a minute, here's a new pill, and he hands me that pill, and my terminal illness was cured by that, I'd go, this guy is incredible. The small thing doesn't trip my trigger too much, but this guy saved my life. And that is the, the key. You know what? What, Pastor? You know what? I can do both sides of the, both sides of the sermon if I have to. Uh, I really don't want to put a guilt trip on people because the bad thing about guilt trips is they wear off real fast. So when I'm up here trying to say, friends, if everything in your life is more valuable than your Savior, you don't understand your sinfulness. If Jesus is something you only get around to when it's convenient, I know that's a guilt trip, isn't it? I just renounced that. If everything else comes ahead of him, you don't understand how bad you need a Savior. You don't understand how desperately lost you were. You don't understand that. When I was about 15 years old, I was living a sinful life. Well, not that bad, but you know. I was contrary. Glad I was delivered from that. And my wife said, Okay, nothing there either. But uh, I I wasn't going to church at the time. I was just kind of doing my, hanging out, keeping it real, doing my thing, you know. And uh, I remember the youth group one Wednesday night came to my house. It was, I don't know, about 10 of them. They came to my house. I was sitting outside in this, swing not a swing set but it was a swing you know with a bench and they came and they kind of huddled around me and 
I remember the kind of the, the lead teenager of the group. She said to me, Jeff, you should you should be a part of the youth group. And I go, I, I got basketball, I got this, I got that, you know, I got got my social life. And before they left, they all just kind of lined up in front of me like a firing squad. And they said, we are going to be praying for you. Go ahead, get out of here. And when they started praying for me, weird stuff started happening to me. When my mom and my siblings would go to church on Sunday night, the wonderful world of Disney would come on. I loved that show. I couldn't enjoy it because I was afraid the rapture was going to happen and I was going to get left behind to watch the wonderful world of Disney next to the Antichrist. I didn't like it. One thing that really spun me around, and, and I know maybe this doesn't work for everybody, but one night I dreamed, dreamed, Ethel, I dreamed that I was in hell. And I don't, I'm not sure what all is going on around me, but I remember I was walking through hell. And I don't remember fire and burning, but I remember it's absolute loneliness, absolute alienation from anything and everybody that I love. And I'm not, this is not doctrine, this is a dream, so you take it however you want it. And I walked up to this clear wall. And I could see heaven. And I could see my mom and my relatives over there having an awesome time. And I would yell and scream and try to get their attention. But they were completely unaware that I even ever existed. And then I went to church the next Wednesday night. And I said, I'll join this youth group if you'll quit praying for me. didn't say that that was a joke but i always remember the eerie awful darkness of eternal damnation and i am so glad that jesus came to deliver me from that lostness i today and I think that my wife and I could say to you with all integrity on this because we've done it multiple times in our life. I will give up anything for Jesus because he gave up so much to provide for my salvation. See? And the reason it is so difficult for people to put Jesus first is they don't understand their own lostness. They don't understand their own sinfulness. The reason we struggle and we put money ahead of Jesus and we're tight with God and we do all these is we don't understand how lost we are without Christ. You guys all right? Let's do one more lesson real quick. Demons are no match for Jesus. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, 
you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised him. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Can you believe that? You can't get healed on the Sabbath. We're worshiping God. We don't heal people. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years, 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, his opponents were humiliated, and the people were delighted with the wonderful things he was doing. A demonic spirit, I'm not sure how it did it, it took control of this woman's body, bent her over, and tormented her. She couldn't straighten back up. The devil enslaved her, and no one around her seemed that worried about it. It seems to me that even she had just accepted, this is my life. You notice she didn't go running to Jesus. Jesus looked at her and said, come here. Come here. Daughter of Abraham, come here. I want to do something about what's wrong with you. He called her forward, and I assume she responded, and Satan's hold was broken off of her. Are you listening? Are you listening? Satan has made a run at you. Made a run at you. Satan has made a run at you, and uh, he's examined your past, or he's examined your personality, he's examined your kinks and your quirks, and he's found a foothold. He's found a hold to bend you, to deform your spiritual life. Eighteen years. She walks around looking at the ground. She could, should have been up. She should have been. And the Bible says she was tormented. So it wasn't that she was just bent over. She was racked with pain. Eighteen years. Think of. Of all the good stuff she missed. Have you ever been going through a trial and you thought, Lord, I'm going to be okay, but man, this is unhandy. Hello? I just, while I'm going through this, there's so much I'm not getting to do. There's so much fun I'm not getting. There's so much joy. There's so much peace. There's, there's so much that I'm being robbed of. Satan has found a hold, and he's used it to deform your spiritual life. And instead of enjoying your life in Christ, you're tormented. You're tormented. Life is an endurance test, and and not as... Wasn't it Peter who said, it is joy unspeakable and full of glory. 
Listen, Jesus is saying, come here, come here, come here. This doesn't have to continue. Come here. Satan got a hold on your life, and he took from you joy and peace. He broke apart relationships that God was going to use to enrich your life. There there were things that God was going to do in you and through you. And man, it was going to be an adventure. It it was going to be this incredible experience. But Satan found a foothold and twisted. And unfortunately... Anytime, this is theological, anytime Satan has got victory over me, it has to be with my permission because my king has given me authority over him. So if I am being deformed and tormented spiritually, i got to cooperate with it. And so when the enemy comes against me, and against my mind, I have to use what God has given me to stand in victory. And I don't know what that means to you. I, I don't. I don't know how that plays out in your your, your mind. All of us probably have gotten somewhat knocked around by life. Both my parents are with Jesus now, and I am beyond grateful that that is true. But I remember growing up in an environment where, I don't know that, not that there was any intention into it, but I remember growing up and and becoming a teenager and a young adult being absolutely without any self-esteem or self-confidence. I remember, I don't know if you guys ever had the experience when my dad would be working on something and he'd be laying under a truck or something and he'd say, Jeff, go get me that 5-8 box stand. I had no idea what a 5-8 box stand was. And so you go to the shed and you're praying, oh God, lead me to the 5-8 box. And, and, and when you don't get it, you know, your dad comes in and says, you are the stupidest. And, and, and you walk through life um, with that profound sense of inability and inadequacy. And I found one of the great struggles of my life is to say, Satan, you will not take that vulnerability in me and twist and deform my life. I choose to believe that the power of my Heavenly Father can help me be capable and competent at whatever it is that God has called me to do. What happened to you? What is the enemy exploiting? What vulnerability is he using that is bending you over and tormenting you? 
I just pray that the lesson of this lady will be the devil's no match for your God. She came forward all bent over. And though it was against the law, Jesus touched her. And she stood up. And she began to praise him. What is going on? 18 years of affliction gone like that. You know what's happening right now? Some of us, I don't know, can't certainly wouldn't say all of us, but some of us, the Holy Spirit is showing you a vulnerability that Satan is using to deform your spiritual walk. And I want to tell you today that Jesus can heal that if you'll let him. Instantaneously. Now you're going to have to reinforce that. You're going to have to walk it out. You're going to have to say, Lord, you delivered me from that. And when it starts coming back, you're going to have to rise up and say, no, God's greater than that. Every once in a while when I feel those feelings of of uh, inadequacy and incompetence coming out, say, no, wait, those don't belong here. Jesus took care of those. Will you stand with me, please? You've lost so much. You've lost so much. So many days that would have been full of peace and joy. Instead, they're full of oppression, anger, guilt, inadequacy. You've lost so many days. We declare today that the day of losing is over. That we're going to be healed. Whatever was done to us, whatever woundedness was inflicted upon us, that Jesus is going to touch that. And we're going to straighten up and praise Him. Amen. Amen. Father, I just ask you right now in the name of Jesus, as you look at your sons and daughters, as you look at them, you see their brokenness. You see that spiritual deformity. You see that vulnerability. Lord, you see that glitch or that quirk that the enemy is using Rob them of the rich fullness of their lives. You see it, Lord. And now, God, please help them hear you when you say, come to me. Come here. Come here. Let me heal you.
vexation. May it now dissipate. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, thief comes to rob, kill, and destroy. We no longer live with that plan. We live that you came to give us abundant life. That's the plan that we move forward with. We don't receive the condemnation and the devaluing and the crushing of that oppression any longer. We rise up in the power of our Savior and we walk in the healing that is in His name. We receive that in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Father, I praise You that if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, that they will understand that you are a God who loves them unconditionally and you died on the cross for every single sin they have ever committed, will ever commit. And may they by faith ask you to come into their heart and be their Savior as they believe in their heart and confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. They are being saved. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Hope you'll be back next week for the next part of this series. See you then.